My chicken farm story. Where does that go? I said we easily take on the aroma of the environment around us, right? And the, the, the environment around us is an angry age. We easily, as we interact with people, as we interact with issues, we easily could take on, oh, it's, it's political season again. Have you seen the signs start popping up? Oh, that's fun. You know, it hasn't even started raining yet, and already they're popping up. They're growing all, all around us. It must be election season again. And, and, and that creates all kinds of new opportunities to be offensive to people around us. Some of you are saying, oh, good. We live in an angry age. Have you noticed? And we want to be careful that we, like my chicken barn story, that we don't take upon ourselves the aroma of an angry age. What do I mean? Did you know that Portland has made the national news twice this week for riots and uprisings downtown? Mob actions and so on. That's a great thing for a city to be known for. Well, it's not only Portland. Here in Vancouver, here in Vancouver, a Trumpster's truck was torched. Don't you like that headline? Trumpster truck torched. What was his offense? He had bumper stickers. Now, his, his bumper stickers were meant to be a little inflammatory, okay? His bumper stickers said, Trump, 2020. Now, aren't you excited to, to, to start the next presidential season all over again? Trump 2020, it said, make Dems cry again. Okay, is the reason you're going to support one candidate or another is just because how much it will anger other people? I hope not. But the bumper stickers were probably not as inflammatory as the gasoline that was used to torch the pickup truck. We live in an angry age, and people respond in all kinds of reactionary ways. In the midst of all of this, how do you respond? How are we provoked? When, when, when a political topic comes up, when a social issues topic comes up, and it's not, it's not going from the direction that you normally would go, does your blood pressure go up? Do you get angry? Do you react? Do you want to argue? Or what if you took a step back and said, you know, that's an interesting perspective. I, I've normally, I, 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 I hadn't seen it quite that way. How did you come to that? Or do you wonder about the person, the position? What is it, what is it in that perspective that's different from my own that might also be linked to some aspect of the image of God? Maybe... For instance, somebody has, a, has, a, has something that flows out of the justice aspect of the image of God that's in our human makeup, and they, 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 they want justice, they want action, they want this to happen to those people who did that. Maybe somebody else has a mercy aspect, and they would approach the same situation from a mercy side rather than a justice side, yet both of those are connected out of the image of God in us, which we display and live out so imperfectly. Is that a word, imperfectly? I'm not sure, but we'll go with it. We, we live it out imperfectly. Thank you. 
in, in, the, in the midst of a, a fallen humanity, as broken people in a broken world. And yet, if various positions could somehow be linked or connected to the image of God in humanity, maybe, maybe there's opportunity for connection instead of conflict. Maybe we could respond differently than the anger, anger of the age. We're going to be turning to, to um, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, the odor of an angry age. And, and as we go there, I want, to, I want to consider what can we learn from how Paul first arrives in Athens. We're not going to get into the Areopagus sermon this week. That'll be next week, Mars Hill. But this week we're going to talk about Paul's entrance and how he responds with what he encounters when he arrives in Athens. We're going to talk about a, 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 a primary response that Paul evidences. We're going to drill down a little more by taking a step back into when Paul was at Thessalonica and how he describes what his ministry there looked like and why. That'll help us a little more to get some, get some sense of the tone of what this right response in the midst of an angry or ungodly age ought to look like. And then we'll also take a look finally at some secondary responses. So that because some of you will hear me say this and you think I'm throwing that completely out, but let's talk about that too. Primary response and then secondarily. First, first let's... Uh, Let's think, before we get into the passage that we're going to read, Acts chapter 17, I want to take you on a little tour in Athens. I want to show you what is it that Paul would have encountered that leads him to react to the way that he does, okay? So first of all, as Paul's arriving to the city gate, the main entrance gates of Athens, he would have gone through what was called the ceramics or the pottery district. And there was a, a large graveyard that was excavated there. So it would have been there with all these big monuments. As Paul is approaching, Approaching the wall and the gates of Athens, he goes through literally the valley of the shadow of death. He's approaching a city in death and spiritual darkness. He arrives then into the marketplace, and you can see a little bit of the tracing. This is a model of what the marketplace looked like, the Agora, what it looked like in the first century. We'll see some of these buildings or the remnants of it. There's a temple way over on your right-hand side. That's this temple right here. That's the temple to Hephaestus, one of many. There were plenty of temples and, and altars. This is one of the stoas or a columned porch that was in the marketplace. This one's been rebuilt, but there were several of these built to impress. It was a quite an impressive area that Paul steps into. He could easily be overwhelmed and in awe by the great construction. He was certainly encountered over and over again various idols like this one, the altar of Zeus of the Agora. Just uh, on the other side of the Acropolis from the Agora, there was another very large temple, one of the largest in the ancient world. This was a temple to Olympian Zeus. It took over 500 years to complete its construction. It was massive, you can see, by the size of the people versus the size of the columns of the little bit that's left. This is, of course, the well, most well-known temple in Athens. This is the Parthenon which is on the Acropolis, that high city in the center of the city. You can, find your, you, you can tell where you are anywhere in Athens by looking to the Acropolis. It's, it's center no matter where you are. And that's the, the, the biggest part of it was a, a temple to Athena, the goddess of Athens, the patron goddess of Athens. And, uh, but that was not, by far not the only temple on the Acropolis. And there were others that surrounded it as well. So when Paul is in Athens, he is inundated with idolatry. 
As one person said, the, uh, of Ephesus in the ancient world, so also of Athens, the acrid scent of idolatry was in the air. There were temples too. Let's see if we, can, if we name them all. I couldn't name them all, but there was Athena and Nike and Hygieia and Erechtheus. I'm not even going to pronounce these right. I'm sorry for that. Erechtheus, the goddess of Rome, Augustus, Pandrosus, Olympian Zeus, Dionysus, Hephaestus, Ares, Aphrodite, Asclepios, Themos, Isis, Apollo, and in the middle of the, alt- uh, of the marketplace, in case we missed any, there was the altar to the 12 gods, the 12 gods of the Greek pantheon, who were also depicted on the, on the uh, front of the, of the Parthenon. And uh, along with that, there was an, an altar apparently that Paul runs into somewhere in the city called the altar to the unknown god, in case we missed one. There were altars and pagan temples everywhere. Now, that's what Paul, Paul enters through the graveyard knowing that this is a city of spiritual darkness and death as he wanders about the city on his own waiting for Timothy and Silas to to come from Berea. He he just, one temple after another, one altar after another, just uh, overwhelmed by people in spiritual darkness. And what is his response? Look at Acts chapter 17. Beginning of verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. And he saw the city full of idols. Paul was provoked. But that leaves a question. If Paul is provoked because of all these idols, what is Paul provoked to do? See, provocation points to something. And we haven't read that yet. Paul is provoked. What, what do you do when you're provoked? I'll have to see if I can try that with you sometime and find out. Well, this is what Paul does. He was provoked within him because he saw the city full of idols, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, those, those, those Greek people, Roman people, who, who believed in the God of Israel as the true God. He reasoned with them in the synagogue concerning Christ and, but that's Sabbath, that's Saturdays, and in the marketplace every day with those, with anyone who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler or this seed picker, is the word used, wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They thought he was talking about a Jesus divinity and an Anastasis divinity, the word for resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Arapagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange thing to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Arapagus, says, Men of Athens... This is how he starts. In this background of pagan idolatry and spiritual darkness that provokes his spirit, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. That almost sounds like a compliment. You are a spiritual people. I get that. I see that all over your city. As I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this description, the altar to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, not knowing, this I proclaim to you. I want to tell you about the God that you don't know, 
but need to know. Now we're going to go into more of the, the, what Paul does and what he covers. It's fascinating what he covers in that, in that message there on the Oropagus, on Mars Hill. But I find it interesting that Paul is provoked, but he's provoked in a different direction than we might have thought. He's provoked to do what? He's provoked to reason with people. He's provoked to engage with people. He's provoked to go out uh, and, and to provoke others to faith in Christ wherever he can. He responds to that, that um, seed picker slide. What a seed picker was in philosophical circles this is somebody who grabs an idea from here and takes an idea from there and, and puts those things together in ways that don't really make any sense. But he thinks he's got something new and he, he's trying to pass it off as something significant when it's just little pieces of this and that put together. That's how they were dismissing him, even before they... They understood themselves as more intellectual and more insightful than, than, than Paul. And yet they admitted they didn't know what he was talking about. And so they said they wanted to hear more. But he responds to that slight, that derisive, that mocking. He responds to that, I, I can see that you are very religious. You're a spiritually oriented people. That's good. We've got some connection here. Paul is not provoked, this is important, Paul is not provoked to withdraw or to throw stones. He is provoked not to separate, but to engage and to stir up conversations wherever he can with people around him, like there in the marketplace. I call that ad hoc evangelism. As the occasion arises, evangelism. Some of you are in the habit of actually going out in places sometimes during the week, and you go to particular places because you know you're going to run into people there. And when you go to the same place regularly, reoccurringly, you bump into some of the same people there. And you can start up conversations. Over time, you get to know one another. And you do this. I'm thinking of one guy in particular who told me, told me how he does this, that he, he winds up having conversations. He, if, if there's nobody around, he'll, he'll spend a little time there reading his Bible instead of sitting at home all by himself and reading his Bible. He reads his Bible out there in the open where other people could mock him if they wanted to, but it might start a conversation with somebody, which he does want to. Ad hoc evangelism. Getting out to, seeking an opportunity with anyone whom we might have opportunity to be engaged with. You know, I worry that maybe I'm not provoked enough. Maybe eternity doesn't catch my heart enough as it ought. Because maybe the reality of eternity and even eternal loss of people doesn't break my heart enough that I would seek to anywhere with anyone, how could this turn into a gospel opportunity? I don't want to put a guilt trip on us because any different ones of us do that in different ways. And, we, and, and some, it seems like all the evangelism techniques are written by extroverts, doesn't it? And yet, and yet, that song, that song that we sang just, just a couple minutes ago, Lord, show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. That's what Paul's evangelism looked like. We sometimes make Paul this, this amazing, wondrous evangelist, and yet a lot of it was relational in the same way that you relate to people around us. He describes that for us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
That Paul, in the midst of, in the midst of an antagonistic environment, in the midst of people that didn't agree with him, in the midst of people that were actually trying to shut him down, Paul remembers both who and what matters most. Turn over to second, for 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is written just after Acts chapter 17, so it's very timely in the middle of this conversation. And 1 Thessalonians, Paul describes in chapter 2, he gives us a glimpse into the tone of his interactions with people. What did Paul's personal ministry look like? What can we learn from it? I'll start in verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, that doesn't dissuade him. That doesn't shut him down. He said, as you know, we still had boldness in our God, boldness because of God, to declare to you also the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. It wasn't easy in Thessalonica, and yet they did. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or an attempt to deceive the things he was accused of, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul, first of all, remembered who matters most. Other people may disagree with him. Other people may mock him. Other people may stir up opposition against him. But Paul's convinced that what God thinks about it matters most. God has the final say. And so for Paul, it's God's approval that matters more than men's disapproval. Don't let people shut you down. Don't let people intimidate you into into quietness. God has approved us to be entrusted with his gospel. God has made us his own messengers. And Paul realizes whose perspective matters most. You know, will we easily be influenced by the aroma of our age, by the perspectives of our age. The, the, I find that God's perspective is normally not found on Fox, on NBC, or on CNN. God's perspective is found on, in ESV, NIV, or NAS. I'm going to pause and let some of you get that. Some of us are confused about where God's perspective is found in the midst of our culture, and it's no surprise then that we find ourselves carried along by those other perspectives. There's a danger of picking up the odor of the age just like I would pick up the aroma of that chicken farm that I worked as a teen. Are we going to join in to the anger of the age around us, to the response, the reactions of the age around us, whether it's in Portland or Vancouver, or or are are we going to react against it? Or... Are we going to respond differently? How did Paul respond? He describes it here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He didn't manipulate people. He didn't seek to be clever or flattering. Or, uh, he didn't seek people's recognition. But look at verse 7. He said, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, our own lives, because you have become dear to us. I always thought it strange that Paul, the apostle, uses this image of a mother, a gentle, caring mother as his example of ministry. Paul, couldn't you come up with something a little more manly than that? And yet... 
That mother's love, that caring, that sacrificial giving of oneself, and many of you are right in the middle of experience that you know what that is like. That is, I want to affirm you moms, that is a character of God's image. That's an aspect of God's character, God's image in you as human bearers of the image of God. That that loving, sacrificial giving of yourself, not sleeping because you love this little one who's howling at you, that's God's sacrificial love that he, that he puts in you for you to express in ways that reflect him. And so then, whether you're a mom or not, let's start with you ladies. I know Paul used it for himself, but ladies, uh, just as families need moms to be that, so our church needs, needs ladies to be that. I noticed between the service there was something in the bulletin about nursery and pre-K. You say, well, my kiddos are gone. Well, we've got kiddos for you to love on. All right? It's part of this family. But, to, but that's how we act toward people around us. That's what we're provoked to for the people around us. Paul puts it in ministry terms. But I want to affirm that mom's ministry as well. He said, we worked day and night. We had vocation and we volunteered. You know, most of what's done in churches and ministries is done by people who are not in vocational ministry. It's not the pastors. It's, it's the church as a whole. It's the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, right? And it's the saints who carry out that work of, of ministry. Paul says, we labor during the day to support ourselves so we can labor at night, or it was vice versa. He, he was out there in the day when the people were around, and he's working tents late into the night in order to provide for himself so that he can do that. Not putting a burden on somebody else, but he gave of himself. And I can tell you, I, I suggest in the first service, that sometimes we act like the bulletin is this menu of opportunities that you could participate in and get something from. But the bulletin is not that. I want you to turn your thinking a little bit. I want you to think of that bulletin as this, this, there's various opportunities in there at different times of the year. But every week, open that bulletin and look, where in here might I give myself away for the sake of somebody else? That's Paul's model of ministry here. He says, like a father. Go down a little bit further. Uh, verse 11. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted, we encouraged, and we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom. Family needs a caring, nurturing mother, and a, and a, and a family needs an a exhorting, encouraging, charging Father. Men, you need to be that. Your family needs you to be that. Encouraging. One of the men in my Bible study group, he described that encouraging as not saying, yeah, it could be better, it could be better, but rather saying, you know, man, man, that was good. You know, if you, in fact, if you did this, if you just tweaked that a little bit, man, you would nail it. Feeling good about where he's at in the race that he's running so far, but, but providing that encouraging correction that would push it all the farther. Charging on God's authority for us. But just like a, a family needs that, how a father does that in family, so in the church. Men again. This is not merely to fathers, is it? But for men to be as men for the church family together. Exhorting and encouraging and lifting and charging and challenging. Stretch a little more. We need that together. 
You know, think of that mother and father and the impact that that has on children and the impact that has on those who are not our children. I was looking for a place where I could include this, and this is it. This is it. This is God-given here. The, there, there's a family in our church, and there's more than one family in our church that have taken on kids and are, and are, and are loving and raising those kids, although they, although they weren't their own. There's one family in particular. That's Tyler and Sarah Stout that I wanted to tell you about this morning because I want us to pray for them. Tyler and Sarah Stout, about a year and a half ago, took a couple of foster boys. One of those boys, after several months, was able to be returned to his family. They got back on their feet again. They got some things straightened out, and they were able to have their son back with them again. The other family, that's just, there's been efforts at that, but it hasn't, it, 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 it isn't going to happen. And the courts have, have said uh, parental rights have been given up and so forth. And so now it's moved finally after a year and a half of fostering. And some of you know what that's like. It's moved into that adoption stage, that adoption decision. And yet Tyler and Sarah don't know if little Leon will be allowed to stay with them. The court could direct that in another direction. That's not known what that other direction might be at this point. But it's not up to them. And so they're praying that they could be mom and dad and the family that this little guy in the midst of his traumatic background needs. I think it's worth pausing right here and praying for Tyler and Sarah because there's there's the court decision, just kind of a week-by-week thing right now. And uh, it could be settled. The anxiety could pass and it could be secured for the future. Let's pray for that family. Just as one example of what this looks like. Father, we we lift up Tyler and Sarah to you as one of our own, out of our own family that have have given themselves for the needs of others. This little boy. Father, we want your best for him. We want a a stable and caring and loving environment where he could could flourish, where he could thrive, that he could grow into a, a man of faith who knows you and trusts you and walks before you in this world. Lord, we don't think it a chance that you have introduced him to the Stout family. And so, Father, we pray for his future. And we ask, Father, we ask that that future might be with Tyler and Sarah and their other four kids. Lord, that you would, you would affirm him in that family. Lord, for his good and for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Like a father, like a mother, that, that's, that's a whole different tone of how we react. It's a different aroma than the angry age around us, isn't it? It's very easy for us to be affected by, by an angry age. It's very easy for us to pick, on the, pick up the odor of that age around us rather than what we ought to be focused on and how we can go about it. In those descriptions that Paul gives us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I think there's a warning here to not let Political priorities of the age overtake spiritual priorities that God has given us through the ages. Spiritual needs always come ahead of, should overshadow the spiritual issues or the political issues at hand. Don't let economics sideline your thoughts concerning eternity and how you might relate concerning eternity to people around you. Don't let your concern for how many people are getting into this country distract you from a focus that ought to be on how many people are getting into heaven. We're very worried about the Supreme Court. 
and the judgments that occur there, but are we worried about the judgments that occur at the great white throne that will matter for all eternity? Now, what I'm not saying here is we ignore all of that and we focus only on spiritual matters. We live in this world and we're called to be salt and light in the midst of this world, in the midst of a community, in the midst of a neighborhood, even in the midst of a family. And that happens a couple of ways. Now, this is that last move I, t- I told you about, that there's, there's a primary response, and that is to be provoked to provoke others to faith, to be provoked by the darkness and the need that we see, to be provoked toward faith in Christ rather than any temporal solution. And yet at the same time, we are to participate We can participate in our government, in our society for good. And there's that reading that we started with. There's that reading out of 1 Timothy chapter 2 where Paul urges us to pray for leaders, for governors, for those in authority. And he's not talking about the ideal leaders. He's not talking about praying for those that you would want to be in responsible positions of authority. He's talking about people like like the crazy Caligula who lost his mind while he was still emperor. He's talking about Claudius who expelled all Jews and Christians among them from Rome. He's talking about narcissistic Nero. These were not your ideal leaders. These make our leaders look good. And yet Paul says, pray for them. Pray for them. And the prayer for them is because God's goal is stability over anarchy. The goal is that, that, that God desires people to be saved. And Paul is saying, pray that we would have a stable and an orderly environment that allows people to travel to other cities that the gospel would spread there. The peace of the Roman world when it was peaceful. The, the, op- the freedom for us to engage with others without fear that we can talk about spiritual things. Paul says, pray for stability, pray for orderly and peaceful lives because God desires all people to be saved. He wants salvation to extend to all kinds of people, the very people that are around us. In an angry age, faith relies on prayer more than protest. Okay? In an angry age, we respond first with prayer rather than acting in provocation. One of the ways that we pray is we pray, Lord, that we would have that opportunity to witness. Paul's talking about leaders and for society, but certainly we can learn from there that coupled with our our witness to people around us has got to be praying for the people around us. You've heard me say before that we talk to God about people before we talk to people about God. One of our sister churches has a, has a, has a cute, a cute memory device for this. They, have, they actually have cards, and I copied this onto the back of your sermon notes today. It's my seven for heaven. Seven for heaven. These are seven people whom you know, who you have interactions with, who you, who you inter- engage with regularly, and you would love to have a spiritual conversation. You'd love to be able to tell your story of faith in Christ with them. Opportunity doesn't seem to arise, or maybe it has, but it hasn't gone anywhere. And you so want to have the chance to share your faith and see this person come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so they say, these are my seven for heaven. It could be three, it could be five. Let's face it, seven for heaven just got kind of a cute ring to it. We can remember that. But, but who 
could you be praying for in line with this witness that you want to have to them? That's the point. Alongside of praying for our society so that we would be able to be a witness in that society, there's those privileges of citizenship. The privileges of citizenship include participation in that society. Even participation in public office among the leaders and rulers in that society. I published this little booklet for our church uh, coming back off our sabbatical and our time there in Greece. And I called it 30 Days with Paul on Mission. And on day 26, I think it is, I introduced you to Erastus. There's an inscription in Corinth on some pavements by the theater that this Erastus, who was the city treasurer, or he, he was the director of public works, some responsible financial and practical office that, that um, led him to, in appreciation for being entrusted with this office, this, this inscription says that Erastus placed these pavements, he paved this area at his own expense. It reminded me of politicians who, who, uh, who promise infrastructure if you would only elect them. Here's, here's a politician that we know to be a Christian man. Paul, Paul refers to him. Paul commends him. Paul sends greetings from him who's with Paul to the church at Rome later on. The same Erastus who laid those pavements. Here is a Christian man in civic leadership who kept his campaign promises who is in, in that position, gives out of his own resources for the good or the betterment of the community rather than drawing from it. It's a good example for us. We've got an Erastus among us. We have got somebody. Eileen is one of those who is in the Eileen Choiring. One of our sisters is in the midst of, of um, a, a responsible role in our Clark County city government. And you say, man, I'm glad she's there because I sure wouldn't want to do that. Then pray for her. If we're supposed to pray for all of our leaders and rulers, certainly we would pray for those among us who are engaged in that kind of public service. And they have a public testimony. And people that you and I don't interact with very regularly know and can interact with Eileen and others like her concerning their faith in Christ. So there are, there, there are opportunities to be like Erastus, to be involved in government. If you're not involved in government, then we better have a say in who is there for us. You know, voting not only selects people. This is, my, this is probably the one time during the election season where I'll say, hey, you should be registered. Hey, Christians, you should vote. And the reason is, first of all, we have an opportunity to, to have a say in who is selected. But imagine if people didn't bother to vote. If people didn't vote the vote, there would be no accountability to those who are in office. By voting, we exercise accountability, which is important for any one of us, and so for our leaders as well. I'll tell you to vote. I won't tell you how to vote. Not because I don't think it matters. I think it matters greatly. The problem I have is not the IRS rules and those kind of things. That's not my problem at all. The problem I have is the Bible doesn't tell me who to vote for. So I can't tell you who to vote for. But what I will say is vote according to biblical values. 
We are salt and light in the community, and we do that through God's light. So vote along that way. There are key issues that determine my voting. There are some that I prioritize higher than others. Let me give you a bit of a list that might start you thinking on, well, what are biblical values that affect the present political climate? First of all, I think, is accountability to a creator as creator. There's that valuing of human life that we are unique among all creation as image bearers of God, bearers of God's image, fallen as we are. The essential aspects for society of marriage and family, of justice, of the consistently accountable, consistent accountability to the rule of law. These are things that are essential in our society. These are things that that Scripture talks about. There'll be others in there as well, issues of of, uh, definitions of some of those family things and morality and and which candidates do you think, which office holders are going to support that better, not merely because that's what you like, but because it's, it's what's good for society. It's what's good for the people around us. Now, maybe you don't know what this candidate or that. You know the hardest people to vote for are the judge positions because you just often don't know because they're not supposed to say, well, I would judge this way or that way if you were to. We elect judges all the way to the state Supreme Court, and yet uh, you don't know. How do I know where this judge kind of leans in their perspective if I should vote for them or if I should vote for a different one. Well, let me go back to my chicken farm analogy one more time. Maybe you, maybe you don't know where the judge is coming from or the, or the candidate, but you know who they're hanging around with. You know who they identify themselves with, and you know who it is that supports them, and maybe groups that endorse or support them give you some indication because you know the kind of things that those groups or organizations are supportive of, and whether that's something you agree with or something that you disagree with. And that gives you an insight on which way to go because we're going to pick up the aroma of those that we hang around with, right? So you can tell something about them by those whom they're associating themselves with. We need to be, in the midst of an angry age, provoked to provoke, but that towards faith, not a further spiral of anger and frustration. We do that by remembering that God's perspective matters most and the people around us who need him matter to us and we'll give ourselves for them. And that aim will participate in government as well, not for what we want out of it, but what's good for people around us as a whole. And I want to leave you with one last image. I want to take you back to Athens one more time. Remember I said that Paul entered into, into that, that city through a graveyard. Well, as we were walking around the excavations in that same area, the ceramics district and this very fascinating graveyard and the monuments that were there, overshadowing the graveyard today is a church. Uh, Not a Baptist church, but a Christian church. And a church that while we were there, the graveyard was filled with the sound of singing because in the middle of the afternoon, the choir was there rehearsing. 
And I thought to myself, that's what our witness needs to be in the midst of an angry age. That our worship, our song to the Savior would be such that it is, it is like light in the graveyard in the midst of spiritual darkness. Our praise and our confidence and so our sharing our story of what Jesus has done for us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would let others see Christ in us. That we would be provoked, Lord, not into arguments, but we would be provoked by the needs that we see around us. That any evidence of spiritual darkness would not provoke us to anger, but would provoke us to empathy and a desire to share our hope where hope has been lost. Father, we, we would ask you to, uh, to, to use us in, in all kinds of ways, lovingly, caringly, gently, encouragingly reaching out to people around us. Lord, use these relationships that you give us, not that we would be shaped by the relationships that we have with others, but that you would use us as the way Paul describes it, Lord, your servant described it as, a, as an aroma of life unto life. We want to be an aroma of life to the people that you place us among, Father. Lord, we want to be that as a church as well. Would you use this offering? Father, would you use even those communication cards as, a, as another opportunity for people to say, this is how I would like to give myself in ministry for the sake of others. Lord, let this offering be not only what we have that we would give toward your ministry, but Father, that is simply a token of how we yield ourselves to you. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.